Unfortunately, I won't be uh, translating my sermon into Korean. That would require incredible grace of God to do, uh, which I haven't been gifted that particular um, gift as of yet. So the um, sermon will be in English. Our sermon is entitled, A Great Joy for All, and it comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. 오늘의 본문 말씀은 누가복음 2장 1절에서 20절 말씀입니다. Um, 제가 성경 본독할 때 그냥 성경 따라서 읽으시면 됩니다. 저는 I'll read the Bible and you can follow in yours and just read along with me. This is Luke 2, chapter 1, verse 20. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph. The baby as he lay in their manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just had been told them. Amen. Again, our sermon is entitled A Great Joy for All. All meaning, of course, all nations, all peoples, the joy, of course, pointing to the person, that baby in that manger, that is Christ. The coming of Christ is the great fulfillment of God's promise to provide a Savior. We see this from the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis 3. A Savior, a King, one who would redeem mankind and resolve the issue of man's sin and God's wrath against them. In today's passage, we are given Luke's account of the birth of Christ into this world. The coming of God's Son made manifest for all to see. He is our joy because we cannot bring about this joy on our own. We cannot save ourselves. Luke's telling of the incarnation, the birth of Christ, is quite magnificent if you read it in its totality because of its distinctive storytelling features. And I won't go into all of them, but I'll lay out a few as we talk about today's text. There are layers, of course, to this telling that are truly worthy of our examination. So let's look at a few things as we just follow through the text. So you can just have your Bible open, and I'm just going to walk us through the 20 verses that we just read. 
Let's look at the first few verses. Caesar Augustus' actual name was Caius Octavius. And he became the Caesar of Rome, Caesar being uh, a position, the emperor of Rome, in 31 BC. And he reigned until 14 AD, when he passed at the age of 76. Two years after becoming the Caesar, he was declared the first Roman emperor by the Roman Senate in 29 BC. This meant the abolition of the Roman Republic and it ushered in the beginning of the supreme powers of the Roman Emperor. If you're familiar with Star Wars, it sounds very similar to that stuff. Uh, the name Augustus was given to him, meaning this, exalted one. So you have to wonder, why does Luke begin with an account of a secular king, of a secular leader, and a secular power? Well, there's going to, of course, be a parallel in comparison here. And his name, Augustus, the exalted one. That's going to be an interesting point of contention for us as well. Look at verses 4 to 5. Since each person had to register for the census in their hometown, Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, both Joseph and Mary, by the accounts of Matthew and Luke, uh, reveal to us that they are of the house or part of the house of David, and they are descendants of that family, the Davidic family. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 records and prophesies of a ruler of Israel that would come from Bethlehem. In 2 Samuel, we also remember the covenant that God makes and forms with David, to preserve an everlasting throne in his family, in his lineage, forever. Not to mention that Bethlehem, the word itself, the name of this town in which this Savior would come, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. And of course, in John's Gospel, we see the seven I am, ego, amy statements of Jesus, one of them being, I am the bread of life. What we see here in the opening verses is the introduction of two kings. And they're dramatically different in their presentation. And they're dramatically different in the reality of what kind of king they would be. Two rulers, Augustus and Caesar, the exalted one and the truly exalted one. Luke is setting the scene, if you will, by lining up an earthly king of great power, magnitude, and authority over the most uh, powerful empire on earth. Right? This is the king of the greatest power on earth. And he is pitting him against this baby born in a manger, this child. The question that follows, and perhaps the theological idea that is being implied to us by Luke, is this. When you see Augustus, and when you see this child in this manger, who is greater? Mary gives birth to Jesus in verses 6 to 7. Although we must note that scripture does not, of course, explicitly, but implicitly indicates to us uh, the actual birth taking place in a manger. You can imagine, I mean, for those of you who are on the brink of, of giving birth, you can imagine what it would be like to give birth into the, into, in an animal's manger of all places. And they, of course, is, it's mentioned to us that he simply was laid in this manger. There's three things that I quickly noted here. First, there is likely no room in the inns due to the influx of people returning to their hometowns for the census. So there's a practical reason for this. It's not that they were just being denied at the door. There were actually people traveling, and uh, all the inns were taken. Secondly, a manger is a place where animals were sheltered and fed. This again contrasts the earthly image of Jesus the king and Augustus the emperor. The humility of Christ is emphasized here as he enters the world into, the, into this place, a manger, and ends his earthly life on a cross. Third, Mary wraps Jesus in cloths, a simple detail, if you will, for us in Luke's gospel. 
But as the mother of Jesus welcomed her son by tending to him and caring for him, by wrapping him in cloths, we could, of course, fast forward to the end of Luke's gospel and quickly find she will do the same on the day of his death, when she will wrap the body of the adult Jesus and lay it in Joseph's tomb. It's a powerful connecting image, if you will, between the birth and the death of Christ in the hands of his mother. Although the modern perspective on shepherds in verses 8 to 9 we are noted, of course, the presence of these shepherds. And today, of course, you know, we go to Sheepgate Church and we, have, we talk about shepherds a lot. And we see images on the walls sometimes of sheep and shepherds. And we sort of have like a positive connotation to the idea of shepherd. And we sometimes think of shepherds as being somewhat of a humble employee who tend to sheep and do humble work, but honest and genuine work. The reality during this time, in the, in the period and context in which Jesus is born into, the reality was that the shepherds were some of the lowest class citizens in all of society. They were disregarded, mistreated, deprived of basic, basic societal norms. But it is to them that the angel of the Lord appears. It is to them that the angel of the Lord would first proclaim the arrival of Christ, the Messiah. Consider this, Luke's gospel opens with an angelic proclamation and promise given to another person, Elizabeth, a woman, and then to Mary, another woman, who go on to become vessels of prophetic fulfillment. One gives birth to John the Baptist, and Mary, of course, gives birth to the Son of God. And then here we find another angelic proclamation being delivered to lowly shepherds, low-class citizens, who have no business being told of the arrival of a king. The two groups of people that Luke highlights to open this telling of Jesus are women and shepherds. People who had no significance societally at this time, no impact, no standing. People whose testimonies in a Roman court would be completely ignored and disregarded, in fact, not even received. And yet it is to them that the coming of Christ is first proclaimed and given. Powerful, why? Because Christ has come for all. And if you read Luke's gospel, it's a constant breaking of these societal barriers and norms. That it's not, as Paul would say, not just for the Jew, but Gentile. Not just for the man, but for the woman. Not just for the slave, or not just for the free, but also for the slave. It's for all. That in Christ Jesus, this gospel, this proclamation, this coming king, his good news and his work is for all. It's an incredible thing. Many have claimed like Christianity was just uh, created by the apostles and, and the people of this time. And it was just a, a fairy tale that they created or story or narrative that they invented for, the per, for their own sort of uh, personal interests and, 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 and selfish ambitions. This, if that was the case, you wouldn't have women and shepherds being the ones who are proclaiming the coming of Christ. And then later at the tomb, the women being the first people proclaiming the resurrection of the Christ. That would be preposterous in a Roman context. You wouldn't want that. You would want men doing that, men of status, men of some kind of societal uh, posture and prosperity. And it is not that. It is not that case. What we have here is a declaration and proclamation of the opening of the kingdom of God and, and the access to it now being open to all. 10.14, the angel begins to proclaim the truth of Christ that has come. John 4.42 is the only other place in the Gospels where Christ is referred to 
a savior, indicating Luke's clear Christology, doctrine of Christ, that in his understanding, Christ is truly the Messiah, the promised savior of all, the promised king, and this Christ functions to save. The shepherds are propelled and motivated to see this reality for themselves. But what stands out to me is this, that they knew so clearly that this message, although there was mystery to it, was originated from God. It came from God. They move in haste and find the manger in which Mary and Joseph were delighting in a baby Jesus. Here's John Calvin. He writes, This was a revolting sight and was sufficient of itself to produce an aversion to Christ. For what could be more improbable than to believe that he was the king of the whole people, who was deemed unworthy to be ranked with the lowest of the multitude? What a scene this is. Sometimes we, you know, we pass by churches, and uh, we pass by homes that have incredible decoration of the manger, right? The manger is portrayed as in this first sort of mystical way, and it's, it's, it's almost a beautiful image nowadays. But when the shepherds arrive in that manger, it could have been nothing more than absolutely gross in their sight. And to think that this, this child in this setting would be the savior of all. What a mystery that must have been. One of the amazing storytelling attributes that Luke utilizes is that of mystery in the works and words of God. It permeates throughout all of his gospel, as if to suggest to us this, that although there is mystery in all of this, we are to be in awe of that mysterious wonder, not to be deterred by it. And here we find the testimony of these strange shepherds being told to others, and a couple who themselves received angelic uh, visits, and yet there is continual wonder together in the mysterious works of God. They trust the word of God, and when they see the work, it's mysterious, this manger. But let us also marvel at this. The shepherds became that day the very first human witnesses of Christ and the first preachers of Christ who had come. An appropriate response in in the last verse, in verse 20. Even though left in mystery to all of God's works is to praise him and glorify him for all we hear and see. Praise God this day for our privilege in witnessing his mighty works, ongoing works, and his honest words that continue to hold true. As the angels proclaim glory unto God in verse 14, here the shepherds are moved to again do the same, even at the sight of this child. Whether it's shepherds in the manger or the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross, when you behold Christ and you know him truly for who he is, you can do nothing in baby or dead body form, exalt him as the true son of God. For all the showboating, for all the flexing of power and authority, for all the important decisions that were made to further progress the Roman Empire, and for everything he did to first become the ultimate emperor and ruler of Rome. A great man that that, uh, Caesar Augustus was, and for all the great things that he had done and accomplished. Brothers and sisters, never forget this. He is truly man and truly nothing else. He's just man. He's mere mortal. And a man's legacy only goes so far and is temporary at best. Consider this amazing fact in your own minds. For all that Augustus did and accomplished, for everything that he did that was grand and spectacular in his life, 
Who is remembered today most in the minds and hearts of people all over the globe? Augustus or Jesus? That baby in the manger or the emperor on his throne? Did you even know who Augustus was or did or accomplished before I told you today? I'm sure some of you are sitting here thinking, oh, I thought he was talking about Augustine this whole time. Jesus' earthly life may not seem like much, but it has had an everlasting legacy because he, unlike Augustus, is not merely man, not merely mortal, truly man and truly God. Jesus Christ came as the scriptures taught and prophesied. As God himself promised and secured, he truly came. He did. The movement of human history all culminated and worked in unison to set the perfect table as God willed for the coming of Jesus, and he came, just as he was promised, just as he was gifted. Blessed are we this day, on this Christmas day in 2023, in remembrance of this birth of Christ who truly came to us. Let's pray and reflect on what we've learned today in God's word. Take a moment to silently consider the teaching that God's word has bestowed on us.